Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Uh, I'm Brian Curtis. Well, a clutch of headlines this morning. Alcoa kicks off the U.S. earnings season with a beat. The IMF says China will meet its growth targets this year. It says the U.S. and the U.K. will lead a turnaround in the global economy. Yen strength killing the Nikkei this morning. And U.S. banks being forced to hold more capital in reserve. So quite a few headlines there. Hope we get to all of them. And we've got lots of exciting guests, too. First, this little tease from the IMF's head honcho economist, Olivia Blanchard. I think that the U.S. economy is in very good shape. I think the recovery is very solid. It's uh, balanced. It's good. It's going to continue. Okay, so we'll hear more from him in a minute. And we've got this one uh, for you as well. Greg Lemkow, co-head of M&A at Goldman Sachs. I think if you look at the pipeline for the rest of the year, it's a lot more of the same. It's big transactions, it's strategic deals, and it's transactions really across TMT and healthcare, which we've seen a lot of year to date. So he likes what he sees there in mergers and acquisitions, TMT. It's kind of an old phrase. We used to use it a lot. Uh, tech, media, and telecom. So a few more comments from him in a minute. In our featured segments, Hong Kong property prices have cooled a little bit. As such, should the government roll back its cooling measures? We'll see. Michael Klebanner from Jones Lang LaSalle will join us. Also, is the one-day rebound in tech uh, sustainable? Frederick Ockvist uh, from China RAI will be along for that that discussion. And Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management will help us take a look at markets. Uh, speaking of markets, uh, we do see um, a little bit higher uh, gains in the United States, and we'll bring you the Asia feed in, in just a minute. First, the IMF saying that it believes China will successfully meet its target of 7.5% growth this year. We think they can do it. I mean, they clearly uh, have difficult issues to uh, deal with, uh, namely the, you know, the speed of uh, the intensity of credit growth, uh, nature of shadow banking, some, some bad loans, uh, some firms which clearly should be closed. Uh, but we think they have the ability, the means, the financial means, the political uh, commitment to do it. Uh, if the economy were to slow down, they are ready to push it a bit. So we think the 7.5 is our best guess. Going forward, Mr. Blanchard says it might be a slightly different story in China. Now, looking forward, it may well be that growth in China uh, will have to be a bit lower than uh, 7.5. They themselves are talking about 6 to 7, looking over a few years. Uh, that seems quite reasonable. Again, Mr. Blanchard likes the United States and the UK, but he says that growth elsewhere will be a bit uneven. In many countries, which is are we going to be able to grow at uh, the same rate as before the crisis, I think in many cases it's no, we are probably going faster uh, than we can. Things have changed. The financial crisis may have things, made things worse. Uh, so each country will have to look very carefully at what rate it can grow. That's a big issue for countries like Japan uh, or for some countries in the Eurozone in particular. In Asian markets this morning, the Nikkei is down 141 points at 14,465. I mentioned that the yen strength was having a, a tough effect on the Nikkei. The yen moving to 101.95, so that's the uh, yen a lot stronger against the dollar. And the dollar is trading at 1.3792 U.S. dollars. The other um, markets that are open now in Australia and in Seoul, the, um, the indices there are a little bit higher, up to about uh, two-tenths of one percent in terms of gains. 
trades. Gold, $1,309.50. So gold was up about $10 or $12 an ounce overnight. Oil prices, $107.67. So a couple of dollar gain for a barrel of oil. Let's move on to Wall Street, where stocks were higher. Some of the recently battered technology stocks uh, gained. Google, Facebook, and Tesla, for instance, all rallying more than 2%. The NASDAQ 100 was up almost 1%. In terms of the broader numbers, the S&P 500 rising 0.4% to 1851, while the Dow Jones Industrial Average picked up just 10 to 16,256. Investors had pulled $1.3 billion out of technology ETFs in the past five days. We go back now to Greg Lemkow from Goldman. He likes what he sees in M&A. So I think the pipeline looks very similar to the beginning of the year, which was a pretty strong activity. We saw a 35% increase in volumes uh, over the first quarter last year. And the two things that were most notable about the first quarter were the size transactions. So we had more deals over $10 billion than we had at any point since 2006, which I think is a big move. And then second is the nature of the deals, which are really strategic deals by blue-chip acquirers. So the first quarter we saw M&A from... Comcast, Facebook, InBev, Volkswagen, you know, all big blue chip companies doing deals. And that's very different than what we'd seen in prior years, which were more focused on spin-offs and consolidations of existing ownership stakes or LBO deals. And so I think if you look at the pipeline for the rest of the year, it's a lot more of the same. It's big transactions, it's strategic deals, and it's transactions really across TMT and healthcare, which we've seen a lot of year to date. Deal reporter Christina Alessi says it would be a nice pickup from last year. Well, what frustrated bankers last year was that we had all of the conditions that were ripe for M&A activity. We had the equity markets that were strong. We had low financing costs, valuing all the things that you would typically see. And yet we ended the year with a complete flop, right? If you look at the value of deals last year as a percentage of market capitalization, that proportion was the lowest since the 1990s. So that's just a metric of how abysmal we started off the year. So Christina Alessi there of Bloomberg, uh, just before that, uh, hearing some comments from Greg Lemkow at Goldman, another Goldman strategist, Dave Costin, is the uh, top U.S. Uh, strategist. He thinks there is a 67% chance the U.S. equity market will drop 10% this year. But he also thinks that the market will eventually finish the year higher than where we are right now. The bond market was um, not telling the same story as stocks overnight. We saw bonds a little bit higher, so the yield on the 10-year Treasury dropped a couple of basis points to 2.68%. We welcome our first guest to the program, Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management. Peru, good morning. Good morning, Brian. What's your overall feeling at the moment about um, the conditions in the market for equities? Well, I think that we are in the mature phase of this bull market, which has been going on for five years now. And we are not in the early stages, that is for sure. Because if you look at the sectors which are now participating in the advance Brian, the advance is getting narrower and narrower, and that is usually seen towards the latter stages or the mature phase of the bull run. So you've got to be selective in the sectors that you buy. You've got to be selective in the stocks that you own. Not everything is going up. Uh, a lot of the sectors and stocks, especially the momentum ones, uh, have already entered their own mini bear markets. So you've got to be selective in what you buy. Does that jibe with the idea that Europe is coming out of a difficult period and the U.S. is starting to show more steady growth? Well, it is. Uh, Usually the equity markets lead the economic cycle. So if you look at what is happening now, the Fed is 
commenced its tapering program and that is a tightening of some sort, although new money is still being added into the system, is not being added at the same pace. So I would argue that there is some sort of tightening going on. So I think, you know, you've got to be careful because at some point the QE is going to end and the short-term uh, Fed funds rate is going to go up. And at some point in the future, maybe two or three years out, you're going to get the yield curve inversion, uh, which always happens before the big bear market recession. So I don't think we are in a bear market. I don't think we're going to go into one anytime soon. But you've got to be very careful. What you still you like uh, stocks a lot more than bonds. That's right. I mean, stocks, I think, could still go off for the next two, three years. Uh, bonds, I'm not so sure, because if you have the end of QE, and also interest rate hikes in the U.S., then I would argue that uh, bonds will probably come down. So we might see a correction uh, here. Perhaps it's already started. We saw a little bit of a bounce overnight, but markets have been weak here in the past uh, little bit. If we were to drop 10 or 15 percent, would that change your overall picture about where we are in terms of the stage of the bull market? Well, of course. I mean – the key thing from my point of view, Brian, is that the market's breadth has to remain strong. If you look at the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line, that is uh, confirming this bull run. Usually what happens is that in the latter stages of a bull market, the advanced decline line tops out several months before the broad market. So what you have maybe is five or six or eight months of divergence between the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line and the stock market. We haven't seen that yet. The recent highs in the market were confirmed by the advanced decline line. So I think we've got still uh, legs in this bull run. But if, of course, you know, if you have divergences there and if you see that key moving averages broken down, if the S&P, the Dow, the Nasdaq fall below the 200 day and then all the action occurs below that level, then I would have to change my position. But for now, I think we are in a bull market. Isn't it peculiar, though, that the um, yield on the 10-year Treasury is falling? You know, it's been kind of consistently falling this year. Started out the year around 303. Now we're at 267. You know, that's um, a, that's a third of a percent down. Everybody else at the beginning of the year thought interest rates were going up. Well, they had a huge run last uh, summer, as you recall, when Mr. Bernanke announced that he was going to start tapering. Uh, rates went up massively, and since then we've been digesting those gains. If this recovery in the U.S. is for real, and I think it is, uh, if housing continues to uh, improve uh, in the U.S., prices start going up, then I think interest rates are going to go up. Uh, they're not going to go down unless there is a crisis or an event somewhere. I think rates are headed higher. Is there further peculiarity that we see a flattening of the yield curve at the moment? In other words, shorter term bond yields have gone up and the longer ones have come down. Well, that is in anticipation of the end of QE and the eventual rise of interest rates. Um, and I think at some point you're going to have uh, increases in the Fed funds rate, as it always happens in the monetary cycle. And then you're going to have the inversion. And that usually is a very big red flag for all asset prices. OK, in a tease for a later uh, session with Michael Kilbanner, uh, do you think that uh, this move on interest rates will will be uh, a seminal uh, uh, mark, a big change in housing prices here in Hong Kong? Well, you know my view on that one, Brian. Uh, you know, yeah, if you, you, look you at- just summarize <laughs> it for 30 seconds for our audience who may be not as familiar with you as I am. Sure. I mean, if you look at the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, you don't have to believe me. You go to their website and you can see the affordability metrics. Uh, it takes 14.7 years of income today to purchase an apartment in Hong Kong. And this is now over, it's exceeded the levels we saw in 97. If you look at the um, mortgage payments, which people are making, I mean, the people are using up about 70% of their pre-tax household income on monthly mortgage payments. For the luxury segment, this is about 85%. And the HKMA has said that when interest rates go up by just 200 basis points, the monthly payments are going to go up by about 30% per month for the average household. So you do the math. You can't keep paying more on mortgages than you take home after before tax. 
Okay, so let's um, use that as a good tease for Michael in a few minutes. Um, we're still trying to get our tech analyst on the line, so continue with you for a moment, Puru. What is your single best investment idea at the moment? Well, you've got to be long uh, the stock markets of the developed world. That's our, our thesis now for the past two years. If you look at the performance of the Dow Jones, the European indices, and also the, uh, Japan, they've actually done a lot better than the stock markets of the emerging world. So that to us still looks like a theme which could run for the next two, three years, simply because I think we've passed the point of no return in Europe. Things always, uh, you know, look the worst before dawn. You know, the, the things are always darkest before dawn. So I think, you know, you've got to buy the bull market in the Western world. But you must be away from you, emerging world. You've been a momentum guy of late. You know, you must be licking your wounds here of late. You know, people like you and Graham Bibby and others that um, follow the momentum trades, uh, you know, all of these uh, biotech and uh, technology stocks, internet uh, companies, and, and others, uh, environmentally friendly companies, uh, they've been battered pretty, pretty badly of late. Uh, have, you, have, you been, uh, have you been nailed by that? Uh, we had about 15% exposure in our equity portfolio to the biotech stocks. Uh, we got stopped out of two of them about a week ago, and we've been stopped out of two of them last night. So after that, we don't have any exposure. So when we say stopped out, it means we put in a stop loss um, on a stock, and when it goes down, whatever that is, 8%, 5%, 10%, when it goes down to that, it automatically sells you out of it. Uh, um, do you normally set your stops at what, about 8 10% lower? I mean, we use a measure of volatility, a thing called the ATR. We use a multiple of that under every single position oh, that here we come, own. Here comes the jargon. Okay, explain <laughs> it to people now. Come well, on. I mean, it's basically volatility. We measure the volatility of every stock over the past 10 days, and we use a multiple of that as the trailing stop. So our stops don't necessarily get hit on losses. If we have a big run in some of the buyers, Biotech names like we had a 50-60% profit. If it comes down, usually 8 or 9%, we get out. So we've booked profits on a couple of biotech positions. One, we were out on a flat break-even and one was down 6% or so. So what we try and do, Brian, is keep the losses very small and let the winners run. Let me do this other line uh, on a story and then maybe we can chat for just a moment about that. Uh, U.S. regulators are going to require uh, the American uh, b- biggest banks, the eight largest banks, to raise 68 to $95 billion dollars to meet the requirements of a, of a new rule. The rule is called the supplementary leverage ratio. It puts a stricter cap on the amount of borrowing that banks do to raise money to make their loans and to buy securities. This new rule will effectively require big banks to raise more money from their shareholders and borrow less from depositors and creditors. Now, that would seem to be a good sign for the health of the banks, but will that slow down their growth, Peru? Oh, of course it will. If you look at economic growth, I mean, what is economic growth? Is business activity, which is driven by credit. So, you know, the economic cycle is really a credit cycle. When people borrow, things look wonderful, asset prices go up and people start spending again. So it's a vicious cycle. And when the credit in the system, the bank credit is is decelerating or is diminished, then obviously business activity slows down. You know, the business cycle is just a credit cycle. Okay, 18 minutes after 8 o'clock. Peru's had his day in the sun, but I ask him to stay with us on the program. Coming up next, Michael Klubon.
Yeah, my problem. No brawn and no brains either. So anyway, um, we do our best, though. <laughs> it's nice to have you with us listening to our silly little money musical tunes here on Money for Nothing. And this is Radio 3. Michael Klobana, Regional Director and Head of Research for Greater China, Jones Lang LaSalle, joins us on the program. Michael, uh, good day to you. Um, we... We, we have a new report out from Savills, okay, so one of your competitors, I guess. Uh, new report says that home prices in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Mumbai are the most vulnerable to a correction. Now, Savills says this is because countries like China and India are seeing weaker economic growth. It says older economies like the United States, Britain, and Japan are recovering more strongly than uh, many people had anticipated. And here in Hong Kong, we've seen housing prices slipping a little. By my estimation, about 5 to 10% after a long period of appreciation, could the government be rethinking its cooling measures? That's my first question to you, Michael. Right. So uh, our data would agree with yours in that uh, since the first quarter of 2013, mass market housing prices in Hong Kong are down about 7%. Um, Recently, uh, Chief Executive Siwa Leung has come out and said that the housing market is no longer overheated and the participation of foreign buyers is now dropped to a low level. Um, and they've basically said that they're no longer going to implement this Hong Kong land for Hong Kong people policy. Uh, it'll remain on the books but uh, won't necessarily be enforced. So um, we're in a kind of ambiguous period here where um, – the policies still stand, but uh, they'll be selective about which ones they they uh, choose to enforce. Yeah, I thought those were signs that maybe they were moving into a period where they might relax them. If they do it, will it be very incremental in your view? Yeah. Um, well, I think we're in a kind of difficult period, which uh, I think you and I have talked about. Um, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of months ago. Um, the special stamp duty and the buyer stamp duty have now been codified in law uh, as of the end of February. Um, and I think one of the complications that policymakers will now face is how they rescind policies if the market does get particularly weak. And our concern has been, and, and I think this is what we had talked about, our concern is that if the market does really begin to correct in a meaningful way and buyer sentiment deteriorates significantly, if in those conditions you then pulled all the policies back, you could potentially unleash a flood of supply of people who wanted to sell yeah. but couldn't because of policy, and that could make a downturn or a correction much more severe. Yes, this was a question I put to a lot of analysts. Um, it seemed like a lot of them didn't really think that was the case, uh, that it could be a trigger to the downside. Uh, in any case, uh, do you think that, you know, knowing government as you do, do you think that they'd be happy with a 20% drop, or is that too much? Um, I think, uh, first and foremost, they're clearly satisfied, rightly or wrongly, they're clearly satisfied that prices aren't going up anymore. Um, and, you, you know, if, if you had addressed some of the underlying fundamental problems in in preventing prices from going up, I'd say that's something to be satisfied with. But in in our view, they've just suppressed the market, which means that there's always risk, whether it's up or down, that when you remove some of the policies, that suppression effect is removed and actual market forces then take over. And uh, that could be quite – that could really add volatility. However, uh, they, have, they have released more land and they are in the process of doing so. Some people even worry a little bit about that. And we see the tapering process. We know that step one. Step two is maybe a little uh, grace period. And then step three is higher interest rates. That, that will all work. Right. You know, in that way, won't it? Right. Uh, 
Yes, I would agree with that. Um, and I think in uh, it looks like 2014 could have uh, a big uptick in supply just based on the uh, – you know where projects are amongst the large developers um but in our view again the policy measures have also suppressed supply because the secondary market has been closed yep. for business and, and that's, that's a, a huge part of the supply huge yeah. part of the supply <clears throat> now yeah. my my buddy sitting next to you there perusa xena has long thought that affordability here is just off the charts it's just too it takes too much income to buy a place so we'll give him a, a moment uh, in to, to say that but um do you think that affordability is still way too i mean it's too difficult it's too it's too much pain for people to buy a place um, I, I think that's undeniable. Uh, the uh, the prices have gotten to a really extreme level, and you know ultimately, uh, you know the bulls say that uh, because interest rates are so low, those mortgage payments uh, are relatively affordable uh, compared to previous points in the cycle, and certainly compared to '97. But I view that divergence, uh, be you know, uh, really as risk. The the divergence between price and apparent affordability. Um, that's really risk. And as interest rates go up, I think the HKMA is absolutely right. People are not really perceiving how quickly those payments could move. Peru, in 30 seconds or so, uh, if we did see a 20% correction, would that bring affordability down uh, to, to make things reasonable? <laughs> no. I mean, if you look at the last 30 years, you know, again, you don't have to believe me. Please go to the HKMA's website. In 2002, 2003, it took less than six years of income to buy a property. In the early 80s, before, uh, after the prior crash, it took less than six years of income to buy a property in Hong Kong. So when we get to those sorts of levels again, I'll buy again. But until then, I'll just keep renting. Okay, my colleague Chris Oliver joins me in the studios. Chris will be sitting in for me when I'm away. I'll be away for a couple of weeks uh, coming up on Friday. And uh, Chris, um, you know, you're sort of um, in that position. Would, would you find it impossible to buy a flat in Hong Kong at the moment? Well, certainly I wouldn't be uh, an active buyer at the moment. I'm kind of hanging on watching the the posters go up at the local land agents and seeing how much they're discounted. So if you could put a question to a smart property analyst like Michael <laughs> Colbano, what would it be? <laughs> Well, how, how should someone who's on the sidelines time the market? Would you give it six months or a year, or would you say look more closely this summer? I, I think one of the, the really important aspects to that decision is what your intentions are. Are you buying an investment property, or do you intend to live there? Um, and if it is your intention to live there, if you can afford the monthly payments and you intend to uh, be in that place for you know five, seven years, um, you know I think that's really a very personal decision. Um, overall, our view is that prices will continue uh, to decline. So I don't think there's any rush into the market right now. Um, but ultimately, your own personal fundamentals and your intentions to live there matter more than almost any other factor. Okay, Michael, have to say goodbye, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, we've we finally managed to get our tech analyst on the line, wanted to give him a few short minutes on technology stocks. So for Peru and for Michael, uh, sayonara, and thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. The time, 20 Six minutes after eight. And a big good morning to Frederick Ockvist, founder of China RAI. Frederick, good morning. So te technology stocks battered of late, but they have rallied here uh, yesterday in Hong Kong and overnight on Wall Street. Uh, uh, have we seen the worst of it? 
hard to say. I think if we look at the time tech stocks in particular, they were probably hit by a couple of things. Uh, firstly, the big ones by the sort of um, CSRC reigning in the sort of shadow credit things that they were all getting into. Then you had a little bit of a slowdown in the Chinese economy, had some more worries about property, etc. And then on top of that, it seems like everyone in the world started reevaluating tech stocks. So they were probably hit a little bit more than um, than a lot of other players. But um, it seems like a lot of people are starting to see some value again. We'll see if um, the momentum can hold out for the week. Because the stocks were very highly priced, um, valuations being high. I mean, you have to pay for growth. They're the fastest growing companies. Uh, for a company like Tencent or when Alibaba goes public, uh, how many times earnings makes it reasonable? <laughs> That's a very good question. I mean, you have to factor a lot of things into that. Um, Alibaba, I think, is especially hard because they're in a lot and many different lines of business. So you have to factor in the growth prospects for each and every single business there. I would probably say that Alibaba, I would find it hard to to um, value Alibaba at a higher um, than, say, Google or something like that, because I think they walk reasonably hand-in-hand. But um, there is a lot of growth in China, and if you believe that China's growth, especially consumer consumer spending, will keep growing at a strong rate, then Alibaba will make sense at quite high multiples. Would one strategy be to look at this recent sell-off, and you saw lots of them down 20 to 30 percent, and try to pick a company that didn't get hit that much? That must mean that there are a lot of people really committed to it. It probably means that the, commi- that the investor base currently is very committed. Now, whether or not that's a good thing and that you know it's a stable company, or whether that is simply that the investors in the company uh, perhaps weren't as quick to react to, uh, to the new market circumstances, it's a little bit hard to say. I'd say probably if we see another dip down now for uh, for the big Chinese internet tech companies, I would probably say that's um, looking like it might be some sort of buy opportunity. Perhaps um, it's hard to say, but uh, the fundamentals of the game haven't changed that much. Frederick, what would you make of the sell-off, and what would the impact be upon upcoming IPOs in the U.S.? I know we have Alibaba on deck. Yeah, Alibaba's IPO is looking sort of less and less well timed as um, as we move on here. Um, I would say that I mean they're pro- they're definitely going to get it get it to go through. The question is about valuation. The question has always been about valuation. Um, they're seeing increased competition from Tencent. They're, um, the credits and the Alipay functions are getting reined in a little bit, but the CSRC. And now this, it's um, it's going probably going to be more of a struggle than they first envisioned. Um, for the other minor tech companies that are IPOing in the U.S., uh, things could get a little bit tricky, uh, especially perhaps uh, Lerju, who are um, uh, in the sort of properties game. Um, so now a tech stock in the properties game in China might not look as appealing as it did uh, a couple of months ago. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Frederick. Uh, that's Frederick Ogvist, uh, founder of China 
RAI. Yeah, and that's the end of the program today. Unfortunately, out of time. Uh, you've been listening to Money for Nothing. Uh, bringing you up to date on the market action. Uh, the Nikkei down 140, still a strong yen, hurting stocks there. But the rest of the markets look pretty good. Australia up about two-thirds of 1%. And the Kospi in Seoul is up about uh, one-third of a percent. Money for Nothing, back chat coming up next. Uh, first, to look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, some coastal fog in the morning. Sunshine expected later. The maximum temperature about 24 degrees. And mainly cloudy in the next few days. Stay with us here on Radio 3. Eight thirty one. the latest in news with Samantha Butler. The second day of the trial of two mainland anti-corruption activists gets underway shortly. Ding Jiaxi, who's 46, is a well-known Beijing-based lawyer and the latest high-profile campaigner from the New Citizens Movement, which called on China's leaders to declare their assets and those of their families. Along with Li Wei, a 42-year-old unemployed man who took part in the process, they are to be tried for gathering a crowd to disrupt public order. The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry says there's clear, unmistakable and deeply disturbing evidence that Russian special forces and agents are responsible for the unrest in eastern Ukraine. Mr. Kerry added that Moscow could be planning a military intervention and warned that Washington was prepared to hit key sectors of the Russian economy with tough new sanctions. The BBC's James Robbins reports. John Kerry's accusations are very specific. The Secretary of State told a Senate committee that Russia's involvement in destabilizing the east of Ukraine was clear, unmistakable, and, Mr Kerry said, more than deeply disturbing. No one should be fooled.